But it's important to remind ourselves that it's only crucial for us, it's only something that we do, because it's really an extension of what God himself is doing. Peter makes that really explicit in Acts chapter 2. This is the very first sermon that is preached after Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter proves three different things in that message. One, he proves that people really should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, God's promised deliverer. Two, he proves that they crucified him anyway, despite what they should have known. And three, he proves, demonstrates that God raised him from the dead and then set him over top of all of creation so that Jesus really now is the Lord of everything. And when the people who are there, are, who are listening, when they hear this, they're crushed. They and their ancestors have been looking for the Messiah for hundreds and thousands of years. Unbelievably, he was there in their lifetime. And they blew it. They rejected him. And now he's in charge. And so feeling this crushing weight, they cry out to the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Thus being translated, we're in really big trouble here, and we are deeply regretful for everything that we did. What, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What is Peter doing there? He's telling people, here's the true nature of your condition before God. You need to repent. You've gotten sideways with God, and you need to turn from how you've been responding to him in a different direction. They have to repent, and Peter says, if you do that, God promises that even though you rejected him, he'll forgive you, give you his spirit. He won't reject you. And Peter ends with something that's a little surprising. He says that it is God who calls people to himself. So even though God uses people, even though Peter is preaching, he's not the one who is actively calling people to God in a way that changes people. He's just the messenger. But God himself is the one who does the calling, the real reaching out, the real searching for people. In other words, God is searching for people. He's a missionary God, looking for people who are not looking for him and then calling them to himself. And as you start to understand that that's what God is doing and that's who he's doing it with us, it tells you something about the nature of the church that he's calling us into. It tells you that the church is not based on human ideas. It's not something that we sat down and we came up with and thought, boy, this would be a really great idea. It's not something that we call ourselves to. It's not something that we call other people to. It's God who does the calling. And he calls us into something that doesn't depend on us. Doesn't depend on us coming up with its goals and its purposes. Doesn't depend on us figuring out what its mission, what its vision ought to be, what its reason is for being. Doesn't depend on us to come up with organizational structures, ways of doing things. Instead, we are called into something that God himself is already doing. And he calls us into that when he calls us to himself. In that sense, missions is incredibly important as it supports the call of God. It's the means by which God communicates 
his desire to the larger world. You get that same sense when Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says it's as though God is making his appeal to you through us. Which means what? We have to be a missional church. We have to care about overseas missions. We have to care about going to unreached people. We also have to care about the people who are around us. We're a missional church because our God himself is missional. The essence of God's call to people is that if you trust him, if you repent and are baptized, he'll forgive you for the ways that you've rejected him, and he'll give you the gift of the Spirit of his Holy Spirit. He promises that he will connect you to himself so that his spirit lives inside of you and now gives you spiritual life that you didn't have before. In other words, what God is doing is he's calling you to a completely different way of life that you, than you had before, a life that depends entirely on him. And so you have to repent. That's not an option. You have to turn away from that other way of life. If you were here with us last week, that was what our guest speaker Rob Edwards showed us in 1 Thessalonians, that God is calling us to turn from idols, to turn from all of those things that we used to depend on to make our lives work, and he's calling us to turn to him, to turn from idols and to turn to the living God. And it's the people who hear that call inside, who respond to it with repentance, who form the church. That very first day when Peter preached, over 3,000 people heard that call, responded to it through Peter, because when God calls, his people listen. They hear that call. They know that that's the voice of God, and they come to him. And God's call expands the church. It fuels the church. That's what God's doing on the earth right now. He's calling people to himself and expanding his people. That's why missions is just a normal part of our lives. So if that's all true, if everything that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is true, why do we bother then with membership? That starts to sound like a human organizational kind of thing. We're about to receive new members. We're seeing our church grow in size. Why do we have formal membership? In fact, I've actually been told over the years that people don't need to join a local church because they're already members of the universal church simply by repenting and being baptized. And there's a grain of truth to that kind of thinking. They, we really are members of that larger church by repenting, by hearing God's call. And yet that way of thinking cuts something out. It ignores the reality of how God organizes his universal church into smaller local congregations. One of the ways that you can see the importance of membership is by thinking about the relationship between leaders and congregants in a local church. And so as you read passages about who and how people lead the church, you get a sense of God's intention for the local church. For instance, a passage like Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What do you learn there? You learn that you do not relate to the universal church. You relate to the local church. You relate to people in the local church. You relate to leaders in the church. You relate to people that you can talk to, can interact, 
with, can have a relationship with, can listen to. People who God's given a very heavy responsibility to. People who have the job of watching over your soul. People who are responsible, who will give an account for how they've tried to care well for you spiritually, how they've tried to guide you, help you. And so in that sense, you can't import those larger worldly ways of thinking about leaders into the church. You can't think, well, okay, I guess a leader's kind of like a boss at work, or they're the CEO of a corporation. You have to instead think different pictures. You have to think village. That's what the word that elder should bring to your mind. Or you think of a flock of sheep. That's the picture that the word pastor should bring to your mind. Or you think of a family, parents whose primary motivation is to love, to sacrifice for everyone under their roof. You think of the kind of relationship where there is a real leader, but not a dictator, not a king, not a master. Scripture never uses any of those words for those who lead in the church. You think instead of someone whose responsibility is to think and act for the welfare of other people, not of themselves. It does not mean that they always get it right. You all know that we at Renewal do not always get it right. But that is what God holds people accountable for. Now, when God says that leaders give that account to him, it's telling you leaders don't appoint themselves. They don't run for office. They're not leaders because they're popular, not because they've promised to benefit a certain constituency or represent a certain group of folks. Instead, Scripture says that God appoints leaders. You learn that in a passage like Ephesians 4, that Jesus gives gifts to his church, and the gifts that he gives are her leaders. That passage goes and lists the ones that he gives. He gave the apostles, the prophets, people who work at the universal level of the church, but he gives evangelists, people who go and plant churches. He gives pastors and teachers who work at the local level. And he gives those gifts, those leaders, to his church, he says, in order to equip the people for the works of service. That's why the leaders are there. They are to serve in order that the rest of the body can then serve. And Jesus does that. Why? Because he loves his church. He wants what's best for her, and he wants to see her flourish. And so he gives her the help that she, he thinks that she needs in order to be what he calls her to be. And he does that locally, not just universally. In other words, God's not holding leaders accountable for people who live halfway across the country. He's not holding leaders accountable for people who visit, who stop in and come in and out every now and again. Instead, they're accountable for the people whose souls are under their care. They're accountable for the people that they're watching over. They're accountable for the people who plug in, settle in, and say, I believe that for this period of time that Jesus has called me to be part of this particular local expression of his church. These are the people that I want to share my life with. I want to journey spiritually with them. These are the people I want to serve. These are the people that I want to help with their spiritual journeys, and these are the people that I want to work with to see Christ's mission extended in this area. 
And so membership is simply a way of saying, because I believe that God has called me here with this particular group of people, I want to make that belief visible. I want that belief to be visible to the whole church, but I also want that belief to be visible to her leaders. I want to make clear that these are the particular leaders that I believe God has appointed to help me grow spiritually at this time. I want them to watch over my soul. I want them to be accountable to the Lord for watching over my soul. And in return, out of obedience to the Lord, I'll listen to them as long as they don't ask me to sin against this God who's called me here. And so at Renewal, we do make a distinction between formal members and congregants. Let me just speak really personally here. If you're not a member, we still love you. We care about you. We, we don't want you to go anywhere else. We understand that there are reasons, past church experiences, hurts, traumas, why some people feel that in good conscience they just cannot become a member. We understand that. We respect that. We want to continue to walk with you while you're here. But for the majority of the people that God calls, we urge you, that you would become a member of a local congregation. doesn't have to be here, but that you would join yourself to a group of people and communicate that you are here entering into a committed relationship with a particular body of believers, with a particular group of individual Christians and a particular group of leaders. That's what the people are going to say in a few moments as they come forward and make their desire public that they are committing to us as a body and that they are recognizing this covenant relationship that God forms. Here's our second smaller message. We saw earlier from Acts chapter 2 that God calls people into a relationship with himself where he forgives them, gives them his spirit. And he says that that promise is not just for you, for the people who are listening. But Peter says that that's for you and for your children. And that's language that would have been very familiar to the people that Peter was preaching to. If you go back earlier in the chapter, you learn that those people who were listening were God-fearing Jews. They were from every nation under heaven. They had come there in Jerusalem for a festival at that time of year. And they would have recognized that phrase, for you and your children, because it's got a long history going back in, in Israel. That's something that God said in every one of the covenants that he made with his people. So if you go back to the very first one, the covenant that God makes with Noah, he promised Noah that he would never destroy again the entire world by a flood. And if he had only made that covenant with Noah as one person, you might think, okay, that's because there's something special about Noah. God made that promise to him because he was what? He was the last blameless man on earth. And you would think to yourself then, okay, I get it. God calls good people. God calls good people to himself. Those are the people he'd like to hang out with. And if that's the case, there would be no reason then to think that that promise that God made was for anyone else. Certainly not for you and me who are not the last blameless people on earth. But God didn't limit his promise to Noah. Instead, he makes it to him and to his descendants after him, which means what? To the entirety of humanity. It's to him and to his children, showing that God makes promises based on his own character, not on the character of the people who receive them. 
You hear that same kind of phrasing for you and your children a little while later when God makes a covenant with Abraham. We talked a couple weeks ago about how the covenants work, how they build on each other. They're the way that God works in the earth, and you start to see that working unpacked more and more and more. So when God promises, no, he's not going to destroy humanity, you think, that's great news. But that's not really everything I want to know. I, I, I don't want to know just that he won't destroy me. I want to know, is he going to save me? Because the reason that God judged the earth with the flood was because of humanity's wickedness. Now, it's pure kindness on God's part not to destroy us that way, but if he doesn't do more than that, what's going to happen? We're, we're just going to replay the same thing all over again. That's why the next covenant, his covenant with Abraham, is so important because it addresses that God himself will save the human race. And he's going to do that through Abraham. Genesis 12, 3 tells us that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through him, through Abraham, which again is great news if you're Abraham, if you're the man of faith who believed God, whose faith was credited to him as righteousness. But what right do you have to think that that promise might actually have something to do with you? You have the right because God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, that the promise that he made with him was for him and for his children. You start to hear this refrain then as you go through the covenants. You hear it in the Noahic covenant, for it's for you and your children. You hear it in the Abrahamic covenant. If you keep on going, you'll hear it explicitly in the Mosaic and Davidic covenants as well. And then as Peter preaches about the new covenant, there it is again. This promise is for you and your children. God's goodness is not just for a handful of really good people. His promises are open up to all of the rest of us as well, especially to our children. And in the Old Testament, God gave his people a special mark that would remind them of his promise to them. He said to Abraham that he needed to mark himself and all the people of his household, any male child who was born into his household, after eight days old, they were all to be marked with the sign of circumcision. It was the mark that went along with the promise, the reminder. And you see there that the promise is not just for spiritually mature people, but it's for you and your children, even if your child is eight days old. Now, clearly, a newborn at eight days old is not expressing faith in that moment when he is circumcised, which teaches you that this mark is not a sign of that child's commitment to God. But what does that mark do then? That child now has a mark that he sees every day, even if no one else can see it, which does, is a little bit like baptism. After we baptize people today, you won't see that mark. But circumcision was a mark that reminded the child that said to him, God has done amazing things for my ancestors, did amazing things to save them, to set them apart for himself, despite all of the times that they sinned against him. And this mark tells me that those promises are for me too, if I believe him like my ancestors did. This mark is a promise from God to me that I can have those promises if I trust him, if I embrace him by faith, if I believe. And so this mark of the covenant was a visible sign. Now, it's a sign that has a lot of different meanings. It showed a lot of things. It showed that God was cutting off a people for himself from the rest of humanity, It showed that he was cutting off sin from that person, the sin that kept the person from them. 
It showed you that blood had to be shed in order to purify his people, in order to cut them off from people and to cut sin off from them. And it showed that this work of God had something to do with a male, with a son, a son of the covenant. And to receive the mark of circumcision then was an amazing gift. It was God's promise that he would embrace you like he had embraced your ancestors if you trusted him. That's what it meant that there was a visible sign given to the people of God. Now, sadly, you read more in Scripture, you learn that not everyone embraced this promise. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9 that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It was very possible. Old Testament tells you this too. It was possible to be physically descended from Abraham and not be his spiritual child. So you could have the mark that made you part of the visible people of God without being spiritually alive inside. It was helping you understand it wasn't enough to just be circumcised in your body. You had to be spiritually circumcised. You learn that in passages like Colossians 2.11, where what you really need is a circumcision of your heart, a circumcision that only Christ can do inside, something that no human being can do for you. And Colossians goes on to say that what happens in that internal, invisible circumcision is what you see in baptism, that we are buried with Christ in his death and then raised with him from the dead. That's why baptism now replaces circumcision. See, there's still a sign of the covenant. It's for you and for your children, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2. But the sign has changed. And the reason the sign has changed is because that old sign was fulfilled. It did its job. It pointed forward to Christ. Circumcision was an outward sign that pointed to something deeper that had to be done by Christ. But since Jesus came and shed his blood, Jesus, the perfectly righteous son of the covenant, blood, his blood makes that inner circumcision possible, and therefore no more blood can be shed as part of the sign. Why? The reality is now here. And so now that Christ has come and shed his blood for his people, we don't shed blood as a sign, and that sign that we do apply is now much bigger. Remember the covenants grow? And so now it's not just boys and men who share the sign of the covenant. Now it's necessary for men and women, boys and girls, to share the sign that shows that they are part of the visible people of God. So the question that people think to ask, are we making Christians today? Absolutely not. We are publicly, visibly taking God and His promises seriously. We're taking seriously that the promises that he made to our spiritual ancestors in his covenants, we take seriously that those promises can extend to our children now, even those who haven't yet reached out to him in faith. God promises in advance that our children can have those promises if they'll take him seriously and believe him. So what does that mean then for us as parents? It means that we have to point our children back to their baptism just like an Old Testament believer would point their child back to his circumcision. It means that we say to our children, you were baptized. God did not overlook you. He decided to birth you into a believing household so that you'd actually get to hear about him, 
so that you could get to know about his ways. He did that because he's thinking about you. He did that so that you could watch your parents as they try to relate to him and try to figure out how to live the ways that he's called them to live. He wants you to believe as well. He holds all this out to you, and he will give you all of his promises just like he does for mom and dad because he loves you. Trust him then to be faithful to what he said he would do. That's why we baptize this morning. If you treat this like a ceremony, parents, if you treat this like a ceremony, it has no value, no meaning. It would just be exactly like what would happen when an Israelite treated circumcision as a ceremony. But take seriously the promise that God is making because of his desire to have your child in his family. And this is something then that you can refer your children back to again and again. God's promise, his commitment to those who are born to his people. Today we have the privilege of baptizing three children, Jacob Song, Elliot David Sharp, Lila Y. Shin. Ezekiel Wrong is not able to be with us today. I'll tell you about that later. He's really okay, but just un he's sick. He's not able to be here. We'll pray for him later. But we're going to baptize three children today. And we're, as we do that, we're declaring they are now part of God's covenant family. And as part of God's family, they get all the benefits of the covenant of grace. That means they're going to be taught the gospel by their parents and by this church. They'll receive the care and the discipline of this church in order to help them grow spiritually. Also that one day they might decide on their own to trust Jesus to save them from their sins and give them his Holy Spirit so that they can live for him. And so the virtues of this baptism are going to continue throughout their lifetime until they are old enough to make their own decision and affirm that publicly like you saw Joseph doing earlier today. To the parents, let me exhort you, please. There is so much that you want for your children. You're dreaming about those things. You're looking for them. You're training them already in those things. They've already been given the best thing that God has to give them, and that is that he birthed them in your home, a home where the parents believe, where they love the Lord, and where they want the best for their child. And so I want you to focus on that. This world is very distracting. There's a ton of things that will try to take your attention away from communicating the faith to your children. As we saw in Deuteronomy, you, you do that all day long. You do it formally, reading scripture. You do it informally, answering questions as they are growing up in your household. Focus on that. Put Jesus at the center of everything that you're doing in your home because there isn't anything greater that you could want for your kids than that. And to that end, then, I have a charge for you as we baptize your children. So let me ask the parents, if you would, to stand where you are and to respond to the following questions by saying, I do. Do you profess your faith in Christ as the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises on his or her behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his or her salvation as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise 
in humble reliance upon divine grace, that you will do your best to set before him or her a godly example, that you will pray with and for them, that you will teach them the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You may be seated. As these children are baptized, we, the church here at Renewal Main Line, the visible universal church, what are we doing? We are bringing them, welcoming them into our covenant community. And so to the Renewal congregation, I ask you this question. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of their children? If so, say I do. Let me pray then for us. Lord, these parents are coming to you in faith that you save those who come to you. Your promise is shown in baptism. And we baptize, Lord, in full confidence that as these children one day acknowledge faith in you, that you will save them as you've promised. And so we pray that you would pursue these little ones, that you would call them to yourself. Lord, that you would give them your spirit, that you would make them alive inside, and that they would reach back to you in faith. And I pray, Lord, that that you would do that early. Lord, I love hearing various times uh, people who say, "I, I never knew a day when I didn't know the Lord. I don't know when that day was. My parents always communicated him to me. Lord, I pray that that would be true of these ones. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we also would be diligent in caring for these children and that we would support the the parents as they raise them. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.